coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 3rd of March, 2024. How did that happen again? I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James. Book of James, the first chapter. If you've been following along, you notice that we've been talking about the topic of trials and how God allows them to come into our life to uh, firm up our faith, to grow us in our Christian life. And, uh, and because that's the case, it's his desire that we respond to them in a positive way. And uh, back James says, count it all joy, which is probably somewhere down the road for how I respond, but I'm headed that way, right? Our topic changes today because he's been talking about trials and how um, God is involved in that process. But as we said, that there's another word that often pops up in talking about the struggles that we have, and that is the word temptation. So we want to talk about temptation today as we spend some time together here in James, the first chapter. So I invite you to look into verse 13 and for the next couple verses here following that. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you can see there's been a strong shift away from testing, which God says, uh, allow to come into your life so that you can get better at this thing we call Christian life. And now it comes to the topic of temptation. I suppose there's, if there's a topic in scripture, that we know well personally, it is temptation. No one has to read us any verses to us to have some experience with those, those matters. But I realized that after I printed out my notes, I really hadn't given you a, de a, a definition of temptation, so I'll give that to you now. Temptation, the enticement to evil by the by the offer of some apparent good. Let me repeat that for you. Temptation is the enticement to evil by the offer of something apparent good. Oh, we go at it, oh, that's good. Uh, but it was really an enticement to do just the opposite, to do evil. So, let's look at at the first principle that God gives us concerning temptation. And that is, God 
tests believers to build them up. That's what we we're just saying. But never tempts believers to tear them down. Okay? God tests believers to build them up, but never tempts believers to tear them down. Because the purpose of temptation, as we'll see in this passage, is to lead us to do something that's wrong. And God's never involved in that process. Okay? Satan is, but God isn't. But I think there's a, an important principle here, too. And um, I'm not sure I gave this one in the notes either. I'm sorry. Temptation is not equal to sin. Because you, you have been tempted doesn't mean that you, of necessity, sin. Sometimes we go, oh man, that temptation was hard, you know. But you know, that's not a matter of sin. Jesus himself in the scripture that Tom read for us a few moments ago in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus himself was out in the wilderness and tempted by Satan, and he certainly didn't sin. And so we don't want to equate temptation with sin. Temptation can lead to sin if it's, if it's uh, responded to in the wrong way. But temptation in and of itself is not sin. So as believers, we imagine that we're going to be tempted quite often, quite regularly. But that doesn't mean that Every time we're tempted, we've sinned. So we shouldn't ever buy into that picture. But how does temptation work? Well, I was looking at this passage here and putting my notes together, and I realized I'm not going to get this all in on one message. So stay tuned for part two, Lord willing, next week. Okay? But let's look how temptation works. He lays it out for us in this passage. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, brings, uh, bring, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And so he gives us two pictures, one of, of fishing and the other one of childbirth, okay? So let's look at, at those two pictures, see if we can draw some truths out of this. And um, I have a question. Do we have any fisher people here? I'm not going to say fishermen. Fisher people, we have some. Uh, how many are catchers? <laughs> that's, well, that's another whole story, maybe. Okay, have you ever gone into a sporting goods store to where they're selling fishing gear? And, and you go in there, and you look on the wall, and they have this size hook, this size hook, this size hook, and that's it. Right? No. On that wall are myriads of lures of all kinds and shapes and sizes, some shiny, some duplicating, some creature that might be uh, appealing to a fish. 
And you watch those people who fly fish, I don't fly fish, but, and they create those little tiny lures that they make. And uh, they make them look like little bugs that the fish might like and they throw it out there. But the other, all those things that are on the wall are not designed to catch the fish. All those things are designed to attract the fish. The thing that catches the fish is often hidden. A hook is there when the fish goes for the thing that is appealing to it. Okay? And James then draws the same kind of analogy. It says, like fish to a lure, we are attracted to what we desire. Okay? Now there's something else about fishing too uh, that you may have noticed that every time you go fishing, you don't always catch fish. Why? The fish may not be there, right? You're looking into the water, you don't know. But if there are fish there, they're gonna be attracted to something in order for you to catch that fish. I've shared this story before, but it's appropriate seeing how we're talking about fishing. We were out deep sea fishing, and on one of my dad's boats that he had built with some friends, and we were trying to catch some albacore. Well, albacore are not little tiny fish. 30, 40 pounds sometimes, and they're fighting fish. They really like to, to take a whatever hook if you get into them, and will run your reel. <laughs> and just wait for a while and wait for a while and then realize you're gonna spend the next long period of time reeling them back in. But we were out catching albacore and we got into a school of albacore and obviously they were hungry. And one of the guys stood on top of the bait tank and he would dip down into the bait tank and he then he would chum basically throwing the bait out into the water. No hooks, no nothing. Just, and the water started to boil as these fish got into a frenzy looking for this bait. They wanted their portion. They wanted their share. And then Dad was having me up on the flank bridge. He says, I don't want you around. What's going to happen? We had two guys who were fishing, and they basically had a stout pole in a, in a line that was really heavy duty, but short, and on it, a barbless hook on the end, a big, shiny, barbless hook. So up here on, on the deck is the guy throwing bait over the side, chumming for the fish. The fish are all there just going after this bait, going after this bait. And the two guys who are actually fishing would drop their line into the water. Well, the fish would see that shiny hook and think, oh, this is another piece of bait, and chomp on it. The guys would then yank it into the boat and then shake the hook off and drop it back in and yank another one. And the albacore was in such a feeding frenzy that they mistook the hook for some of that shiny silvery bait that was being dropped in the water. And so some got bait, and the rest got onto the deck. 
And it wasn't long before looking down from the flying bridge onto the, on the deck there. You couldn't see the deck. It was just writhing in fish that had been yanked out of the water and, and laying there now. And I thought, well, don't they feel foolish? You know, they went for a shiny hook when they were so hungry. Why? Because it appealed to them. They thought that that thing was going to be good and they were deceived, but they bit on the hook. But most fishing isn't like that. Most of it involves something much more selective, one-on-one, -on -one, unless you're catching with a net, but that's another whole story. But if you're actually fishing and you got a line and some sort of lure, but the lure only works if it's something that appeals to that particular kind of fish. And it only appeals to them if they're hungry. If they're not hungry, that lure can sit up there and go, nah. I got a, a similar story. It had nothing to do with fish, but it had to do with a snake. We were walking single line. I was working at a camp walking single line with a group of kids on this trail and about half of the group had passed this particular spot in the trail when one of the kids notioned, uh, noticed that on a rock outcropping right beside the trail was a rattlesnake. And it was right there at good striking distance, right there when somebody could get easily bit. And of course, we backed away from that and uh, couldn't understand why the rattlesnake didn't rattle or make any noise or, and it was just laying there until we noticed that there was a big lump in the snake. He had just had lunch. <laughs> he was digesting it now. And he was not interested in anything else. So us walking by was not an issue to him. As long as we left him alone, he was going to just, he was satiated. He was not interested in bug, bugging any of us. But the lure works the same way. If a fish has just been feeding and he's content, he's not going to be attracted to your lure. But if he's hungry, if it's something that looks like it could be good, and he's hungry, then you go from fishing to catching, okay? And that's what James talks about here. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. What makes a temptation really work is it's, it appeals to your desire. Now, if someone set a plate in front of me and it had liver on it, pass it on by. You know. Now, some of you, I know, give me a rebuttal on that, but for me, that's what, it's not appealing. It might be appealing to you, but it's not appealing to me. Okay? Now, you put some prime rib there. There will be no contest in the choice between the two. Okay? And here's, here's this idea that we are attracted to something because it is something that we would desire. 
And he says, um, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And the principle is this, like fish to a lure, we are attracted to what we desire. That's how temptation works. Now, the question is, who goes fishing for you? Satan does. If God doesn't ever tempt anybody, you know his nemesis does. Satan wants us to fail. He wants us to succumb to this lure and make that temptation into more than just a temptation. He wants us to take a hold of that ourselves. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul talks to the church there at Philippi, and he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And that idea of discernment is to know what thing appeals to me, but does this thing that appealed to me, is it good for me? Okay? And it says that we are to have discernment and approve then what is excellent. In Ephesians, as Paul is writing to the church there at Ephesus, he says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. There's our old fleshly desires. It's deceitful. It's there to fool you and say, oh, this thing is good for you, but it's not. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So I have a question for you, and I don't want any answers. This is for you to answer internally. What lures have worked on you? I titled the message, How Did That Happen? Again. Because if God, if Satan knows that a particular lure works for you, do you think he's going to bait his hook with that lure again? Or is he going to say, no, that one worked. I'm not going to ever use that one again. No, fishermen have their favorite lures because they found that of all the lures they've tried, this one works. So what do they do? They use it again. So is it surprising to us as believers that Satan is going to come back at us again and again with his favorite lures because he knows that he has a better chance of success with us because it speaks to something that is attractive to us. So my question is, what lures have worked on you before? And then, by application, what lures do you think will be used on you again in the future? Well, James uses that part to talk about attraction. 
and it comes from within, actually, our own desires. But it, it is something that appeals to us so that we could do the next part. In verse 14, he says, And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, uh, brings forth death. And to this principle we have, when sinful desires are united with our will, the results of that conception will always result in sin and eventually spiritual death. And you go, spiritual death? I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about something that... Um, Paul talked about in Romans chapter 6. The wages of sin is what? Yeah. Death. He's talking to believers there in, in Romans 6. He says this, this matter of sin will always lead to spiritual death. It will deaden our relationship to Christ. So when sinful desires are united with our will, the results of that conception will always result in sin and eventually spiritual death. And the picture here is not a pleasant one. Because we were talking about fishing a moment ago. He's not talking about fishing anymore. He's talking about childbirth. And of all the things could be said about that, this is a terrible picture because he says, when our will is joined with this desire, it's going to result in sin. Okay? Temptation by itself is not sin. But when we participate in that temptation with our will, we go, yes, I want that, like a fish going for a lure. He says, my plan was not to be hooked. <laughs> I wanted that because it looked like bait. It looked like some sort of food. It looked good, and that's what I want. He says, I never intended to end up in the boat. Never intended that this would be the end of me. And so the illustration that James paints here is one of childbirth and conception being the attraction, this thing that attracts us, and our will saying yes. If it's not attractive to us because it's something that's not appealing to us, or we're satisfied with something else, and so this has no appeal to me because I'm satisfied. Have you ever gone to, sat down at a, at a meal at home or maybe you've gone out to a restaurant and you went in maybe at the restaurant and you're hungry and you look down through the menu and go, man, I have a hard time deciding because I have so many good things here, but you pick something and they serve it and oh, it's good stuff. And you get all filled with that meal, and at the end, 
I've said it myself. You know, I sat down here and lost my appetite. You know, and so if you're satisfied, you are not going to be in, attracted to the same thing. I don't know if you've gone down to like the country kitchen down in, in Portland when they have the big prime rib and good stuff. But you sit down and you finish through that thing. If someone said, hey, are you ready for a prime rib dinner? I go, oh, no. Not after that salad and all those little snack things like celery and, and, the, and the bread and the baked potato and the prime rib. Uh, no, it's not appealing to me now. It was appealing before. It's not appealing to me now. So that ought to give us a hint in how we can be defeating temptation. We're probably not going to be able to eliminate the attraction. But if we are satisfied with something else, then this will be less appealing to us. Paul writes in Romans 7, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. For while we're living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And then he goes on in chapter 8. And in Romans 8, he has something else to say. He says... Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, this is Romans 8, 5, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So one of the things that we can do is to say, if I had the choice between this and this, which one would I choose? Now, yesterday we had a whole table full of, of food. And it's kind of interesting because people go around and they look and they go, boy, I like potato salad, so they get some potato salad. Or I like this green salad, they get the green salad. No one goes through something like that and says, I want something of everything. Because pretty soon they go, okay, almost no one does. But the point, the point is, if you came down and you said, you only can have a choice of all these desserts that are laid out, you can only have a choice of one, which one do you want? Then you're going to use discernment and say, man, I really like this one. I'm going to choose this one over that one. And what Paul is talking about here, he says... We used to operate in the flesh and all these things that apparently were good, but we know that they aren't, would lead to sin if we participated in them. He says, so set your, 
For to set the mind of the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So he says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. If you are thinking and your mind is captivated by the things of Christ, when the temptation comes, you go, I can have this temptation or I can have Christ. Then we have a choice. And he says, choose Christ. Choose Christ. And then the temptation fades. It might have been there for a moment, but we have then, with our will, said no to that. I want this. And we can beat that temptation that way. Okay? Well, Lord willing, we'll come back to this topic and, and uh, explore it some more because it is part of our life experience. And we want to address some other things that Scripture has to say about uh, this temptation and how it works in our lives and how we can defeat it. But I hope this gives you enough to get started. We're going to have uh, the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. I'm going to make my way down to the table. We're going to give a few moments for you to prepare your heart in prayer before the Lord. And then we're going to share these elements. And uh, so I'll make the move down there. And then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat>